You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. This is your faithful editor and host, Michael Lichens, and I'm here with someone who should be pretty familiar with all you longtime readers. This is Dr. R. Jared Stout. He is going to be tackling a very interesting subject in a new book upcoming called The Beer Option, A Catholic Guide to Beer and Culture, which will be coming from Angelical Press. And on top of that, he's leading a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage I very much would love to attend called St. Monks and Beer. So we're going to be the day before St. Patrick's Day is when we're recording this. So we're going to talk about beer, Catholicism, culture. And Dr. Stout is just the right man to do it. So, Jared, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's really a pleasure. Our pleasure as well. So let's go ahead and get started talking. Uh, your book, The Beer Option, is coming out. Can you just give us a quick overview of what that book is going to be about and why a Catholic is so interested in beer? Yeah, so uh, I call it a Catholic guide to beer and culture. So I'm really mm-hmm. looking at the intersection of the two, beer as a work of Catholic culture produced by the monks throughout the centuries. Uh, So I go through the history, uh, I call it a Catholic history of beer, looking at ancient civilization um, and also the Bible as well. Uh, And then I go into how the monks really helped to popularize uh, beer in the Middle Ages and became the first large producers of beer. And then how uh, this history was threatened by all these different revolutions, you know, the yes. Protestant Revolution, the French Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, and, and then even Prohibition. So I go through that history. and But then I also look at some cultural issues. You know, why is beer a work of culture? How does it relate to feasting, to fasting, to mm. friendship, the importance of local traditions, and then even a spirituality of beer? Uh, I go into local economies like uh, home brewing, but also just the, the different local brews that, uh, that are emerging. And, um, you know, so different cultural issues like that. And I go through, of course, some of the great Catholic beers and how to really appreciate them and even develop a, a deeper sense of taste and uh, an aesthetic sense even through beer. And then I get into some cultural issues at the end. Uh, So alcoholism, beer versus marijuana, and consumerism. So I really try to hit a wide range of cultural issues uh, through the lens of beer. That sounds like it. And I'm going to be honest with you, I think a lot of our listeners perked up when you said beer and the Bible. What is that about? (laughs) Well, you know, if you look at the Bible with our standard English translations, the word beer probably will not show up. That's Uh, true. But, you know, you're probably familiar with a lot of references to strong drink. Mm -hmm. And the Hebrew word there is shakar. And that has some very close linguistic uh, relations to the Mesopotamian word for beer. It's very similar, actually. So a lot of people think that even if it wasn't beer exactly as we know it today, it probably was a drink brewed with barley bread. And this was even part of Israel's worship, you know, that they would give these libations of shakar. Right. So they were actually offering beer to God as part of the Mosaic sacrifices. And the Lord was pleased, I hear. So (laughs) Uh, that also makes sense Uh, just from a historian standpoint. I know. A lot of cultures around Mesopotamia, the Levant, Egypt, they had beer. So it makes sense that the Israelites would have come into contact with it at some point. Right. We know, of course, that the Israelites were able to make wine. But yes. the, the major cultures surrounding them were not. 
So beer was the major drink of the Babylonians and of the Egyptians, not wine. Interesting. And then also we talked about a uh, beer you're going to be taking a pilgrimage through, but what is your interest with monks and beer and how do they interact? <laughs> well, I, I have a long history with monks. I, I'm actually mm-hmm. a Benedictine oblate oh, okay. at Our Lady of uh, Clear Creek Abbey in Oklahoma. Oh, wonderful. But I, I began spending time with the Cistercians and their reformed Benedictine group uh, back when I was in high school. So I would spend even a couple of weeks with them at a time and just really fell in love with the spirituality of St. Benedict. And when I became a father, you know, I really came back to that experience I had in high school with the monks. And I, I've really found that the rule of St. Benedict has a lot to say about family dynamics, right? The abbot literally being the father of the monastery and how he wants to help raise up his monks, just like we're trying to raise our children. So I, I find a lot of inspiration in the rule, and the rule comes into uh, the book. Okay. Um, and so the and the the best brewers in the world are the Benedictines. So the Trappists in Belgium, for instance, and the Trappists are a reform of the Cistercians, which are a reform of the Benedictines. So they're all part of the Benedictine family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Trappists uh, make the you know the best rated beer in the whole world in Belgium. And so yes. I've just been very interested with my Benedictine background and my love for beer and just how these two things intersect. And so uh, somebody proposed to me, like, hey, would you ever thought of leading a pilgrimage uh, that relates to beer? And I was like, I'm all over that. (laughs) (laughs) And so to me, once again, the focus is Catholic culture. And so we're starting in Paris, and we're going to see a lot of the the great sites there, even going to the Louvre. But we're visiting the first Gothic cathedral Mm. that was built north of Paris at Saint-Denis. We're going to the Cluny Museum, one of the best medieval museums in the world. And we're going to see the the Shrine of the Miraculous Medal. We're going to see the tomb of St. Vincent de Paul and Saint-Chapelle, Notre Dame, all these Mm -hmm. great things. We're going to go to Chartres, but uh, secondly, but then we're going to go to Salem. Now, Salem doesn't brew. But it is uh, the Benedictine uh, Abbey that's the International Center for Gregorian Chant. And they actually have an American monk there who's going to give us a presentation on chant. Um, And from there, we're going to go to uh, Alençon and Lisieux to see uh, the sites of the life of St. Therese and her parents, who are now saints. Oh. And then we're going to visit St. Wandrille's Abbey, which is the only uh, Benedictine Abbey in France which brews currently. And they're using the brewery to, to literally rebuild the monastery, all these ancient medieval ruins, yeah. which are just kind of sitting there. And so they're using the beer literally to build things back up. Which so is how they did it in the old days. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so they're going back to their Benedictine tradition. And God bless them. And St. Wandrill, I mean, it's interesting. In the 800s, it's actually one of the very first locations that was ever recorded to use hops in beer. And the abbot was talking about growing hops and using them. Because hops, you know, we think of like beer and hops just automatically going together. But they were not the standard additive to Mm -hmm. beer until the 1500s. And so here you had these Benedictine monks in France already using hops in the 800s at St. Wandrill and some other places. So it's kind of a cool sight. And then we're going to stay that night in Rouen uh, nearby where Joan of Arc was martyred. Mm -hmm. Uh, So from there, we're going to switch into Belgium. Uh, we're going up to Bruges, where there's a, a shrine of the precious blood there, and and some beautiful art as well. Yes. Um, and we're go- then we'll from there we'll go to Ghent, and and then down to a, a group of uh, Benedictine monasteries in southern France. One is called Maradsu, 
And that's the burial site of Blessed Columba Marmion, one of my absolute favorite spiritual writers. Ditto. He, yeah, he was a big influence on uh, John Paul II and Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. And uh, his abbey there, they contract with, with another company to brew for them, but there is a Mard Sioux beer. And then from that area, we're going to visit uh, two Trappist breweries. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Chimay and Orval. And oh, we're actually, yes. And we're going to have tours of the brewery. So they're actually on site there. And the monks are involved in, in the brewing and management of the breweries and everything. So that's really exciting. And we're going to end in Brussels. Now, I did forget one site. Before we get to Bruges, it's, it's outside of Bruges, is Asves Vleteren, which is the number one rated beer in the world uh, made by Trappist monks there as well. And you can only buy their beer at the monastery. So that'll oh. be an exciting stop there as well. So. And how many suitcases are you taking? <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have to make friends with a shipper in Belgium. <laughs> and so I should say, because we didn't talk about when this is, oh, this yeah. is o- October 19th to 29th this, this, this year, uh, mm-hmm. 2018. And uh, we're flying out of Denver. Now, I know there's listeners across the country. If you're not by Denver, you can actually buy your own airfare and just uh, meet up with us in Paris. Uh, but if you're, in, if you're nearby Denver, you can, we can fly out as a group, but, but either way. And if you come to visit Denver, that's where Jared and I both live, there's some great beer here too. Maybe not as fine as some of the Belgians, but eh, it's getting there. Yeah, you know, we call it the Napa of beer, the area yes. between uh, Fort Collins and Denver. So, yeah, it's a great place to be while you're doing research about beer. <laughs> no, uh, my, uh, not many people will know this, but part of the Lichens family, my brother actually owns a brewery just outside of Denver in Lafayette. And so it's been very enjoyable to get to know beer from all the different angles over the last year or two. And what's the name of that brewery? That's Endo, E-N-D-O. Uh, they are not paying for this podcast, so don't you worry, <laughs> listeners. But... Well, you know, there's another uh, Catholic-owned brewery that just opened up in Denver as well mm. called Destig, and they have a, 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 another line that they brew out of Destig called Blind Faith Brewing. That's there was right. A, there was just an article in the Denver Catholic yes. uh, paper here about them, and and one of the owners of the brewery actually uh, went blind in the process as they were working towards the brewery, and that's why they have blind faith, just the the, the faith and trust that he needed just to keep going in his life and to keep working wow. uh, towards founding um, the brewery. And they said that they're really inspired by the Benedictines as well, that they want you know their brew pub really to be a place of hospitality and fellowship and conversation and they brew in the trappist tradition so they do a lot of like belgian style beers that's very exciting i know like avery out in boulder does has been experimenting with italian benedictine beers that have been uh, actually one of which is called the norcia or i'm mispronouncing that norcia norcia yes but they they call it bira nursia in the latin so the the town is norcia in italian but bira nursia and they're certainly in my book right you know so there's a these american monks most of them are americans Mm -hmm. back in saint benedict's hometown so saint benedict is from norcia or nursia italy and um so they they established the monastery there in the year 2000 jubilee year and began brewing about i don't know four or five years ago and they have excellent beer uh but they were hit by an earthquake last year and the monastery was leveled and the old basilica over saint benedict's house was leveled 
So they're rebuilding in the mountains uh, just a couple of miles outside of town, and they have a, a, a really nice monastery coming up there, and they're built, they built a new brewery oh, there. Oh, wonderful. So that's an amazing story, but, yeah, that's in the book as well. <laughs> yeah, I've been following – I'm sure several of our listeners have been following those dear monks, and I haven't had their beer yet, but uh, beer or not, I'm definitely praying for them. And, of course, uh, just throwing it out there, Spencer Trappis Abbey, have you had them yet? Yes, I have. Yeah, there's a company called Monastery Greetings, and and they they run like also a, a Belgian beer company through Monastery Greetings, and they oh. you can buy uh, Spencer Trappist online there and some other great Trappist beers as well. I just had Trey Fontani, which is a Trappist beer, beer out of Rome. Yes, yeah. I've had that one. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's yeah, uh, so you can buy it on their website as well. And that monastery is actually near where St. Paul was martyred. It's a very mm-hmm. fantastic site. Uh, if any of these breweries or beer senders want to sponsor this podcast, you can email me, and I will <laughs> gladly help. Yeah, they could sponsor the pilgrimage, too. I mean, geez, <laughs> yes. while we're at it, you know? <laughs> Whenever I talk about beer, there's always free advertising. And now, <laughs> skipping ahead, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book, uh, kind of coming forward into Modern culture, of course, beer culture, not just Catholic beer culture, it got decimated by prohibition. But you even attribute the French Revolution and industrialization to the di- to the disappearance of Catholic beer. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so there's a series of revolutions mm-hmm. that destroy particularly Benedictine brewing. And the oh. first would be the Reformation. Because as we know, I mean, Luther began as an Augustinian friar. And, and his fourth major work was actually against monastic vows. And uh-huh. so he, he was really – he was trying to say that monastic vows were illegitimate. And so you had all of these monks and nuns coming out of the monastery. And he actually married a nun who uh, was a master brewer. And so she brewed beer right at his house, and which they drank at his famous table talk. Yes. So, so right there you had – and then, of course, Henry VIII dissolving all the monasteries in England. So the Reformation was a huge attack on these monasteries and put a dent in Catholic brewing, although it continued. And then in the, in the early 1800s, very early 1800s, when, Napole- when Napoleon was at the height of his power and really dominated Europe, he basically said monks are useless. I don't know how you could come to that conclusion, right? Because they're brewing <laughs> beer, right? So I mean, how, how useless could they be? Uh, but he's he got rid of uh, monasteries in a lot of Catholic countries then as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, on France, throughout Germany and Italy and Spain, he shut down all of the monasteries. So Salem, which I've already mentioned, was the was the first refounded Benedictine abbey after the French Revolution, and Dom Garanger, the founder, Venerable Garanger, uh, really inspired the the refounding of a lot of monasteries throughout Europe, and that's actually when the Trappist beers that we know today got going again. You know, it was a couple decades after everything had been shut down by Napoleon. Uh, but then even still, right, we, in the eight, late 1800s, we had the Industrial Revolution, and that's where we begin to see very large breweries forming. And before, beer was always very local. You know, uh, you'd have a yes. brewery maybe associated with a, with a tavern or an inn, and people would come there and get the beer, even bring it back to their house. Earlier in the Middle Ages, a lot of people homebrewed, but at that point, you know, beer was still very local. And you have big brewers like Bud Weiser as an example, you know, Anheuser-Busch, where they really even experimented with transporting beer by rail with refrigerated cars and, and had a lot of other technological breakthroughs. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, 
that enabled these brewers to consolidate, you know, and of course have a lot of new equipment and machinery. Uh, and so that basically changed the dynamics of beer a lot away from the more traditional Catholic, you know, local beers. Yes. And, and then of course, you know, prohibition just shut down monastic brewing in the United States. There were a few monasteries that had brewed, especially St. Vincent Latrobe. And, you know, in the, in the decades leading up to prohibition, you know, there was a lot of, uh, popular support for these temperance movements that were making alcohol out to be something evil. And, and you know, really, they, they should have focused more on the abuse of liquor because a lot of alcoholism was fueled, fueled by that. Mm. And the monks were actually claiming that beer was a more moderate drink. You know, just have a beer or two with dinner and everything's fine, but, you know, don't be like swigging the bottle of whiskey, you know? <laughs> Good um, advice, yeah. But uh, so the, the monks at La Trobe, I mean, they had permission from the Pope directly to brew beer. So then the, the local newspapers were talking about this papal conspiracy to support beer in the United <laughs> States. And, and, and they, they called, the, you know, the monks, you know, the, their initials are OSB. The, the order of yeah. St. Benedict, but they called them the order of sacred brewers <laughs> in oh the newspaper. <laughs> and so monastic brewing in the United States was pretty much extinct until about uh, 10 years ago or even mm -hmm. less. And the first monastery to begin brewing again was uh, Christ in the desert uh, down in New Mexico. Yes. But now we have probably about five or six different, monasteries in the U.S. that are either brewing themselves or, or have a partnership with a local brewer to produce beer. As many monks that want to brew beer, please have at it because, wow, <laughs> if any of our listeners have never had a Trappist Ale, we've talked about a few on this podcast. They are life-changing, and I'm not kidding when I say that as a beer lover. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've, I've had people where they tell me, listen, I hate beer, so don't try to give me any beer. And I'm like, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Just take a sip of this Chimay Blue, and then <laughs> let me know what you think. And they're like, that's a beer? Are you kidding me? They're like, this is incredible. I didn't know beer could taste that way. That's like, well, <laughs> what beer have you had? Uh, Bud Light, you know? <laughs> exactly. No, this is... This uh, is... So uh, I hate to break it to you, but um, Anheuser-Busch will not be sponsoring this podcast. No, <laughs> no, no. no or I... InBev, right? InBev is the owner, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. well, and while they are they themselves are Belgian, I do not endorse them on this episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> in Europe, Bill, was there a revival of beer like that's been going on in general, or is that had been pretty consistent and unaffected by prohibition? Well, I, I would say that, you know, the big brewers in the United States before prohibition were mostly uh, German Catholic families. Mm -hmm. So there weren't, I mean, a ton of monastic brewers in the United States. Um, throughout the world, you know, you definitely saw in, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, this move towards industrialization and bigger breweries. Um, I just read in part of my research for the book, um, God in Guinness, right? The Search for God in Guinness. I've and, read uh, that one. It's a great yeah. book. No, it is a great book, but but it's it's an example of how you know just one guy set out and then created this huge international you know company. Mm -hmm. And I think that that typifies you know that period of industrialization. Uh, so I would say that you know we're really going through this renaissance, not just of monastic brewing, but of of local brewing, you know, in more experimental styles. 
you know, really it's just through, from the 1980s on. And so the monks really, I think, are, are somewhat hopping back on the, on the bandwagon. It's like they got beer going in the Middle Ages and popularizing it throughout Europe. Uh, and now they're sort of watching like, wait, beer is becoming really popular and this new brewing culture is emerging. Mm-hmm. Well, wait a second. You know, we have a lot to do with that tradition. Let's get back in on that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know many of us who got into home brewing, one of our books that was in our library was Brew Like a Monk. Yeah. And it's a great book. Yeah. Oh, yes, it is. That's a great home brewing. But what I loved about it is, you know, the Benedictine mo- motto is Ora et Labora, prayer and work. And they mean it when they talk like I've was reading somewhere i'm trying to remember which book i read it in but that the monks actually consider their work in the brewery as a part of prayer Mm -hmm. the catholic vision of beer was very exciting to see in that yeah i think there's a reason why i mean the the benedictines in particular have been the great brewers because they do see their work as prayer and they have the right perspective on it i mean uh, pope benedict in his paris lecture talked about this he said that the goal of the monk is he said to querere deum, right? To seek God, mm-hmm. and so they're really focused on the next world. And then he, but he talks about the irony of the fact that the monks became the great formers of Western culture. And he said it's exactly because they were seeking God above else that, in, in, in a way, right? Jesus said everything else was added on to them, right? They became the ones who were able to even focus on the world better than the people who were just focused on the world. And I think it is because they, they're able to see the world, you know, through the eyes of faith and through prayer. I agree. And it's a very incarnational view with beer, which is delightful. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, have the monks been playing role in the beer, this craft beer culture that's been going on for 20 years? Have they had any part in that at all? Absolutely. In, in this sense, I, I mentioned that some of the newer monks who are brewing are sort of yes. hopping on the bandwagon. But nonetheless, a lot of the pioneers who got this uh, local microbrew culture going were, were looking to the monks. They mm-hmm. were inspired by Chimay and Orval and Rochefort and Vesfoteren, um, some of the great Trappist beers. I think about out in, in our neck of the woods, in particular, New Belgium, right? That's the mm-hmm. clearest example of one of the new brewers who was looking to the monks, I mean, directly looking to the monks and, you know, the founder um, of the brewery. I mean, what, that's why they have the the beer fat tire, because he was riding around Belgium uh, with a bike with fat tires, right? You know, like researching um, Belgian beers, and in particular, the, the Trappist and Abbey beers. Yes, and they've done a fantastic job of reviving some monastic styles that I've been excited to see. Mm-hmm. Skip ahead a little bit. Uh, you said you talk about in your book beer and evangelization. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you go into a little, what does it look like to evangelize with beer? And I'm sure it looks a little different than my way of suddenly talking about weird Catholic history in a brew pub. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm really amazed as I'm doing research for the book just to see all the number of ways that parishes and dioceses are are using beer for evangelization. I mean, the clearest example is Theology on Tap. And and actually, that's the beginnings of my book is, uh, you know, I've been interested in beer, you know, my whole life. Uh, I studied abroad in Poland when I was 16. And um, so I started, you know, just uh, tasting some great European beers when I lived over there. 
um, and have been interested in beer ever since. But my first major job after I finished my doctorate was at the Augustine Institute. And, you know, here it's in grad school, right? So you don't have to worry about drinking problems like you do in college, you know, with people going crazy. So we would, I just started getting together with the guys uh, that I was working with at the Augustine Institute that I was teaching. And we just started drinking, you know, monastic beers together. And it, so that was a great way for me to build fellowship and friendship with these guys. And then from there, I was invited to start giving talks on theology on tap. And that's where I started sort of developing my own theology of beer, if you will, right? <laughs> it's through these talks. Yes. And so, you know, theology on tap is, is a very successful ministry. I was just at our most recent uh, theology on tap in Denver last week, or no, I'm sorry, beginning of this week. Uh, and there were, mm -hmm. you know, well over 100 people there. And uh, so I think events with beer, you know, really do attract people and it just really makes a central point for conversation. Uh, but there's there's a parish here in town as well that even did a home brewing class and that the, the people um, who are involved with the parish were, were doing ho home brewing and using the beer at different events that the parish was holding. Yes. And uh, so there's a, a Catholic beer club that meets in different locations uh, throughout the country. Mm hmm. And there is a, a Benedictine monastery of women in Indiana that even has a beer retreat <laughs> because there's a, a, a local Ooh. independent brewer that brews on site there at the at the Abbey. Oh, and so fun. they do different weekend events, you know, using beer. And so um, I think that, you know, the Norcha monks, once again, describe it best. They said that beer begins a lot of conversations for them. They said people will even come to their monastery interested, you know, to learn about why the monks are brewing and what their beer tastes like. And the next thing you know, they're having this great conversation. So obviously beer is certainly not the goal of evangelization, right? You know, uh, sure. we're looking more for the eternal draft that the Lord will, will give us in heaven at the, at the wedding feast of the lamb. Right. And we might get a little foreshadowing mm -hmm. of that with just kind of the joy and the fellowship that we have over a nice glass here. But what we really want to do is, is use beer as a way to begin conversations and just to draw people in and to show that we're really welcoming and hospitable at our parish and, and different other Catholic groups. And I think it's, it creates kind of like neutral ground to meet people, you know, at, over because mm -hmm. a lot of young people, as you mentioned, young adults are very interested in this new local brewing culture. And like I said, the more I look, the more I see that parishes have not really been hesitant. They're jumping in. I, I was trying to count even in my own diocese. I mean, there's a ton of Oktoberfests at different parishes. Uh, my parish has one where the – it's St. Dominic's, mm -hmm. the Dominican – brothers actually brewed their own beer and they got in the uh, the local weekly paper because they now have a ministry where they do a traditional blessing of beer for different brewers so that's awesome it's a great yeah it's great so i'm seeing this more and more that uh, i'm just finding that catholics it's like it must be instinctive right <laughs> you know for catholics that we just know yeah. like hey we, we use beer to start conversations to have fellowship to have conversations and it's just kind of happening naturally across mm -hmm. the country and it is beautiful all right and one question i always love to ask people when they're writing especially such a research intensive book what has been the most surprising or delightful thing that you found in your research wow okay <laughs> for this book for this book well, not your whole life <laughs> yeah that that's a good question um, what was the most surprising thing? 
Well, I think I've already mentioned one thing, is that the shakar thing in the Bible, like beer being offered to God, okay, I mean, that knocked mm-hmm. my socks off, right? No. <laughs> but but uh, so that particular point, I think, was was pretty surprising. But overall, I, I would say that it's, it's just a general point, that it seems like as I began re- researching this, I was just seeing beer all over Catholic history and culture. And so it's yes. to me, it wasn't like a fringe topic. People ask me, well, why are you writing a book on beer? You know, isn't there more important things to be writing a book about? Well, okay, sure. Yeah, I'm sure there are, right? Um, but just the, the more and more I researched it, the more I was saying, you know, beer really has just been a part of Catholic culture for a long time. And, and there is this really exciting kind of renaissance that I was speaking about of Catholic brewing going on right now. And so I think just to really start putting all the pieces of the puzzle together, and seeing a coherent kind of narrative of Catholic culture and the role of beer and just in very small ways, how it can help us to overcome some of the deficiencies of our own culture, right? How often do we make things for ourselves anymore? You know, not very often. And yet people are brewing their own beer, right? Uh, and, and as people yes. are focused on screens, how many conversations do we have with people directly? Well, less and less, right? And yet people are still getting together and talking over beer. So I think, you know, just really looking at the history and the connections to Catholic culture as a whole, I think have just been, you know, really encouraging, I guess I would just describe it as. Our final questions, for anyone who wants to learn more about you, where can they go if you have a website or anything? And then also, just because I'm interested, what's your favorite beer <laughs> at the moment? Well, I'll tell you what, you know, we were talking about that Trey uh, Fontani, uh, and it's made yes. with uh, eucalyptus. And, I, and that yeah. was it's just really uh, was an amazing beer. So I would say recently that's, you know, the best one um, that I've had. But, you know, the Norcha beer, I uh, really enjoyed that, having that a few times in the last couple of years. And also, I was able to finagle getting a couple of cases of the new beer brewed by uh, Mount Angel Abbey in Oregon. Oh, I forgot they were doing a brewery. Fi- I grew up around there, so I've been always wondered yeah, why they Yeah, so they have brew. like a, a Saison, but then their main beer is called a Black Habit Ale. So that was really great trying that out and the Spencer Trappist, you know. So there's just mm. been a lot of uh, great monastic beers that have been very exciting. So I'll just say new Abbey beers, right? <laughs> you know, whether they're Trappist or otherwise. Yes. It's been very exciting <laughs> just uh, trying these out. Very nice. Well, that gives me a few ideas to try a few mm-hmm. things. Thank you. And where can we learn more about you, this upcoming pilgrimage yeah, and all so that? Yes, so the pilgrimage is through uh, – the logistics are through Religious Travel International. So I'm leading the pilgrimage, and our, our chaplain is Father John Riley, who's chaplain of the Augustine Institute. Um, and so, you know, I, I uh, wear a lot of hats. My, uh, my main position is at the Archdiocese of Denver. I work in catechesis here. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, if you're involved in catechesis, you can find me at the Archdiocese website. Um, I, I also teach part-time for the Augustine Institute, and I do writing for different websites. You know, as you mentioned, I've, I've been writing for Catholic Exchange, you know, off and on through the years. And I do a lot of regular writing mm-hmm. at Those Catholic Men. So I really encourage people yes. to check out their website, and, um, and you can learn about Exodus 90 there as well. So I, I did that last year, so I did have 90 days with, without any research for my book, you know. <laughs> Uh, because an alcohol fast is part of that 90-day program. So, yeah, I really encourage people just to check that out. Yes, and we uh, 
have recently partnered with those Catholic men. We run a few of their articles on our site once in a while through our Friends of CE section that everyone Great. should be familiar with. So take a look at that. But I'll put all these links up at CatholicExchange.com. But thank you very much for coming on and sharing your love of beer oh, I had a lot and of culture fun. with us. Great. Oh, me too. And for all of you listening, go to CatholicExchange.com. I'll put those links up. If you're an interested listener and have any more questions for me, or if you want to send me free beer, <laughs> editor at CatholicExchange.com. That's editor at CatholicExchange.com. With that, Jared, thank, thank you, you very much, and thank you all for listening.